most certainly going to finish a touch late this morning, so my apologies for that. However, I do, I do believe that it's going to be time well spent, and so it's, it's worth doing. If that ruins anybody's plan for the day, we won't be offended if you need to go, but um, we do invite you to stay and endure what I hope will be a wonderful sermon. <laughs> Here's a question. Uh, have you ever been in the presence of something that was bigger than you uh, to the kind of scale where you needed to use words like grand or majestic or glorious in order to describe it? Do you know the sorts of things that I'm talking about? It happens, for example, when you climb a mountain and you see uh, the view from the top. Um, or another example, I've got a photo here. Uh, Elise and I once went to Mount Cook in New Zealand. Um, I, I took this photo in, in an old, probably a dodgy iPhone back in the day or something. Um, when, while we were there, we saw a small avalanche. Um, not the sort of like, ah, run for your lives, we're going to die avalanche. More like the, hey, look, there's snow falling down the, the side of that mountain off in the distance that can't hurt us kind of avalanche. And yet there was something profound about it. Um, it turns out that with an avalanche, I didn't know this, you hear it well before you see it. Uh, and then you've got the job of having to look up the hills and see where the sound is coming from, echoing down the valley. And even though it was nowhere near us, the realization of just the forces involved in that much stuff moving um, was just, it just left a lasting impression on me. Do you know that feeling, that feeling of, of majestic? Um, you can get it, uh, it makes me think as well of some places in the desert, driving along the, the country roads where you, you come over the top of what's really just a, a small rise, a small hill, but from the top of it, when you get to the top, suddenly you could just see from horizon to horizon. Horizon to horizon. And the realisation of the size of this immense flat landscape just hits you like a wave. Speaking of waves, perhaps some of you have seen an ocean storm. When the waves are coming in with uh, an unusual fury and size, and the thought of the forces involved in moving that much water, what it would be like to be in the grip of those waves. Have you had an encounter with one of those animals that is just so much larger than us, um, so much stronger or, or faster than we are, standing next to an elephant, this giant grey wall of alive? If it was to stand on you, suddenly you'd become a bit more aware of how significant the size of the elephant is. Maybe you've been scuba diving or snorkeling and come across something like a manta ray, this ethereal giant ghost creature, sort of swimming, however they swim. Who knows? They don't even have limbs. How do they swim? All of these things produce in us a sense of awe and wonder. And there's a thing where when we look at a photo of something, we don't get the true sense of, of what it is that we are looking at. We need to see it next to something else in order to get that sense of scale. That's the point of the second photo here. This is also Mount Cook. I didn't take this photo. Um, but, what, but what I like about it is those trees in the foreground are taller than a human. And it gives you suddenly this sense of what it is that you are looking at. And better yet, not just a photo with a sense of scale, being there in person. When we encounter something which is grand and majestic, there is this sense of scale that kicks in and that gives us a moment of clarity with all of the joy and all of the awe and all of the discomfort that that brings. It all mingles together. What is happening in us in these experiences, two things are happening. 
First, we're being impressed by the external thing itself and its grandeur. That's certainly part of it. The thing itself is mighty. And at the same time, we are becoming more accurately aware of ourselves and our limits. We, we become aware that we are not the largest thing in the world or the strongest thing in the world. Well, all of that is relevant to us today because we are embarking upon a new sermon series. This will take us all the way up to Easter. And it's going to cause us to explore awe and the role that it should be playing in the life of faith. As a church, we spent the last month or so what it means to trust in the Lord. And now until Easter, we're going to sit with what it means for us to fear the Lord. So why are we doing this? Why do six weeks of sermons on the fear of God? Well, it's because things have been going pretty well here and we'd like to free up a little bit of seating space for you. No, there's some, there's some background here. Um, the short version is that last year this theme kept coming up in our time in the Word together, as well as in my own devotional life, in that way where sometimes you have to stop and ask, is the Lord trying to communicate to me and to us? Is God trying to tell us something? The first place we saw it was in our time in the book of Nehemiah. Some of you would remember that. Specifically in Nehemiah chapter 5, where Nehemiah explains some of his conflict with the other leaders in Jerusalem and says that he acted differently then because of the fear of God. Because I feared the Lord, I did not do what they did. Not long after we finished the book of Nehemiah, we spent some time in the book of Proverbs, where we saw that um, what, what some would say is the central thought of the whole book of Proverbs, that the fear of God is both the beginning of knowledge and of wisdom. And whilst all this was happening at church, at home, I was reading a book by the English Puritan, Thomas Watson, first published in the 1600s, which had a few chapters in a row dedicated to the fear of the Lord, and that was blessing me. And to be honest, ever since then, it just feels like every time I open the Bible, the fear of God is in every second verse of the Bible. It's that, it's that big a deal. What I have found in preparing for the series is that this Bible of ours ties the fear of God to all sorts of wonderfully positive outcomes in the life of those who possess it. Here are some examples just from the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 1.7 says that the fear of, Lord is the, fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs 9.10 says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Proverbs 10.27 says that the fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be short. Proverbs 14.26 says, In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence, and his children will have a refuge. Proverbs 14.27 says, The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life, that one may turn away from the snares of death. And so the, the fear of God is a thing which promises to produce a lot of fruit. Can you see? Look at that list. Of course we want those outcomes. I don't know about you, but I want wisdom. I want knowledge. I want life. I want protection. I want to be rescued from harm and to escape snares, and I want my children to have that security as well. We want the outcomes. Our Bible tells us the way to get them. The road that we have to walk along to get to that destination is the fear of the Lord. 
And so if we want those things, we should also want the fear of God. So we're going to be taking some time here at the start of a new year to let an appropriate fear do its beautifully positive work in us to sanctify us and to draw us near. With all that said, the question becomes, where do we begin with such a massive theme? Today, we've got two jobs to do. The first is to make sure that we have a clear understanding of what is meant by the fear of God whilst avoiding distortions. And the second is for us to become convinced that the fear of God is necessary and to begin to embrace its proper role in our lives. There is a passage found in Matthew's Gospel, which has a parallel passage in Luke, which I believe is going to help us do both of those things. If you'd like to turn there, we're turning to Matthew chapter 10, beginning with verse 28. Here's a a quick bit of context for us. Matthew 10, Jesus' ministry has started to draw a significant following. There's a crowd Not only that, he has freshly appointed the twelve to their special role as apostles and is now sending them out on like their first short mission trip without him uh, in order to train them for what their life is going to look like as apostles once he's gone. He warns them what their experience is going to be when they head out in his name. Maybe this is what we should do to Jules, Mike. This is the thing that we've forgotten. He warns them that one of the things which is going to happen is that their ministry will be opposed. Uh, The passage in Luke, the parallel passage, singles out the Pharisees and what they will do, for example. In Matthew, this is the warning that Jesus gives from verse 16. He says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. My wife and I have been watching that, um, the BBC Earth documentary series from about 10 years ago, recently in the evenings, and let me just tell you, that when you send sheep out in the midst of wolves, it doesn't go so well for the sheep. That is not how that story ends. I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. It's quite the salesman, Jesus. This is the promise. There are people who will persecute the followers of Jesus. They will have them thrown out of the synagogue. We, we can't imagine the, the disruption that would cause to a life. There's, there's no parallel now. The deliver you to be beaten, I think we can comprehend that one. In other words, he's warning them that the life of following Jesus is going to bring them into some pretty full-on stuff, some frightening things, things that would cause you to be afraid. And so what does Jesus have to say to his disciples to encourage them and to strengthen them for the coming trial? What he says to them is one of, in my opinion, the most emotionally confusing moments in the entire Bible. Why shouldn't we fear them? Jesus, tell us. Verse 28. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. 
Well, that's comforting, isn't it? If you are um, a little bit uncertain what that means, God is the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Isn't that just a thing? Is that the encouragement that you expected to hear as Jesus prepares his apostles for ministry? Is there anybody here with staff at work that you are responsible for? Like, have you ever used this technique in a meeting to train the new, the new, the new grads? Right? Is that a thing that you think that you could get away with? The next time you're sending them out, they seem a little bit skittish, simply remind them, remember, they can only kill your body. That'll do it. Isn't Jesus just, a, he's just that little bit different to the rest of us, isn't he? Then, if that was not weird enough, <laughs> the very next thing he says is this in verse 29. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered So fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. That one we know. Isn't it strange, though? (laughs) What, What I would describe as one of the most encouraging passages in the entire Bible sits directly beside one of the hardest lines that Jesus ever draws. They are a sentence apart. This is a punch hug. It's confusing. And we find it hard. Maybe it's just me. I'm pretty sure it's not. We find it hard not to, uh, to, hard to know what to do with that balance. How to hold those extreme poles together in harmony rather than gravitating toward one or the other. I mean, uh, Elise used to have a Bible where the front cover of the Bible had a picture of sparrows sitting on a wire and it referenced this verse. But do you know what I've never seen? <laughs> I've never seen the pretty Bible or like the hand-stitched doily that said, fear him who can throw you to hell. Like I just, we, we, don't, we don't naturally or easily feel how to hold both of these things as precious together. But they're a sentence apart. They're a sentence apart. And for that, we should be immensely grateful. It turns out that in sitting together, these two help us understand what is meant by both. We aren't supposed to look at these two extremes and decide which one we like. But both of these thoughts, sitting together as friends, are supposed to lead us into a healthy understanding of what it means to belong to God. What this teaches us is both what the fear of God is as well as what the fear of God isn't. So let's spend some time considering each of those. Let's do the gentle one first, hey? And then we can finish with me punching you. In love. The right hand of fellowship, I think we call it. Let's talk about what the fear of God isn't. Notice the surface level contradiction 
which exists within this passage going from verse 28. In verse 28, we are told very directly, fear. It's a command. It's an order. You're being told to do something. Fear. That's what you're being told to do. And then in verse 31, you were told, fear not. (laughs) So which is it? And the answer is, of course, both. The, The fear which is found in verse 28, do you see, is not the exact same kind of fear which is found in verse 31. There are different kinds of fear, different aspects of fear. There is a kind of fear which we are supposed to have as Christians, but there is also a kind of fear which we are not supposed to have as Christians. Remember, he's he's talking to his disciples here, to the 12. That's our context which means this promise applies to anyone who belongs to Christ, anyone who's a Christian. His encouragements to them apply to us, and there is quite the promise here at the end of this passage. You are of more value than many sparrows. This is the promise. This is God's view of his children. Let me read it again. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. Jesus here describes God, the father, in his sovereign governance of this world which includes sparrows. Here's a picture of one. It's a sparrow. You all know them. They are the irritating little birds in the car park at the shopping center. They poo on everything. Sparrows. They are the birds which nest like a plague anywhere and everywhere, so that construction companies now have to add extra expensive stuff to convince them to not make nests where they don't belong. There are billions of them found on every continent of the planet, as far as I'm aware. Maybe Antarctica ruins everything by being a continent, but you know what I mean. And not a one of those creatures has ever died anywhere ever apart from God and his will. He cares for them, each and every one. Of the billions of them which exist, every one of them which had breakfast today, had breakfast by the providence of God, by his direct intervention. And if the God of heaven cares for the rat birds, He cares for you, his children. Your days are numbered by him and known by him. And he is providing for you. Let that hit you in the heart. Fear not. You are not overlooked. 
It's a tender promise. It's life-giving. There is a kind of fear which we are not meant to have. What is it? The fear of God for the worshipper never means that we fear losing God's approval at all times. In Roman and Greek mythology, have you ever encountered it? The gods of Roman and Greek mythology were fickle. They changed their mind all the time. They were unreliable. They were selfish and they were petty. In short, they were just like people. But the God of the Bible is different. And Christians should not lack assurance of our standing with God. The fear of God does not mean that we abandon our gospel confidence. I've probably shared this before, but I can't help bringing attention to it again. As a church, we said goodbye to Berenice not too long ago. I had any number of conversations with that lovely lady in my years as her pastor. And she was one that wrestled with assurance. And so she can serve as an example for us. Raised Catholic, she knew guilt. Anyone raised Catholic in the room knows exactly what I'm talking about. But she did not know grace until she heard the biblical gospel later in her life. And as a result of this, she found assurance difficult her entire life as a Christian. She never felt confident that God would accept her. Time and again, we had to talk about the certainties of grace. She would say things like, Matt, I really hope that when I die, God will accept me. And I would have to remind her again and again and again, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Have you done that, Berenice? Do you believe that Jesus died for your sins? Oh, yes, I do, she would say. Do you believe that he rose again from the dead? Yes, certainly. Have you placed your faith in him as Savior and Lord? Matt, who else could I trust? There's only him, she would say. And so I would say, so will God accept you when you meet him, Berenice? Well, I certainly hope so. <laughs> Sometimes it made me wonder how lovingly you can beat someone. That poor, wonderful woman. All of us who met her know how outrageous the suggestion that God would not find her faith acceptable would be. I mean, all of this is so wonderfully stated by the Apostle John in his first letter. 1 John 4.15 says this through 19. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him. And he and God. And so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us. So that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. Underline that. Fear has to do 
with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. Here's the point. Through the gospel, the good news about Jesus, through faith in the crucified and risen Lord, we can have confidence in our standing with God. Confidence for the day of judgment. He's not going to change his mind. That's not who God is. He is not capricious. He is good and he is loving. He has revealed himself and shown himself throughout the generations to be abounding in covenant faithfulness. He is long-suffering. And the blood of Jesus will not ever lose any of its power and he lives forever to make intercession for us. We are safe in him. We have the certainty of his love. Those of us who love him. The one who is inside of grace need have no fear of punishment. We are safe in him. I read this somewhere. That there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. This is what the fear of God is not for us. This prevents us from getting the wrong idea. <laughs> the fear of God is not the abject terror of imminent danger. It is not the constant dread of the one who fears imminent punishment. Outside of grace, there is a cause for that kind of fear. But not for his children. We have come to know and to believe the love that he has for us. That's what the fear of God isn't. And now we can talk about what it is. Let's read verse 28 again. Jesus speaking says, So do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, Fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Look, with what we have just heard in mind about the sparrows, <laughs> we must conclude that this does not mean I am constantly worried that I'm going to hell. So what does it mean? The fear of God means, <laughs> the fear of God is, the real knowledge that the God whom we love is the one who alone has the authority to cast me into hell. That knowledge creates in me the sane understanding of who it is I am dealing with when it comes to interacting with the God of heaven. And that knowledge causes me to take him seriously and keeps all other things in life in perspective. There are things more mighty than me. I am not great. This is why I am glad these thoughts go together. 
the first thought without the second. The knowledge of his authority without the knowledge of his grace would lead us to live in terror. The first thought without the second could be seen to undermine grace. But the second thought without the first could lead us into a dangerously irreverent flippancy when it comes to the things of God. An inappropriate casualness. A spiritually suicidal tolerance of my sin in the name of grace. I had a friend who who lived on a, a property and they had as a pet at their house a retired racehorse. I'm pretty sure he was a a thoroughbred. I can't be confident of that because I don't know what that means. The horse's name was Jack. It was a lovely thing. We used to sit on the fence of his paddock of an afternoon and unlike most horses I have ever met, Jack would wander over to us of his own volition for pets. We would feed him carrots and apples and he would love us. One day I saw my friend, and his face was all messed up, scabs everywhere. He'd obviously taken a beating. (laughs) Turns out what had happened was that one day he was sitting on that fence alone in the afternoon, and he let the intrusive thoughts win. He had climbed onto the horse (laughs) without warning or gear, and found out very suddenly that Jack, whilst a pet, was still definitely a racehorse. He connected with a fence on his way to the ground. (laughs) See, Jack was a lovely horse. But one thing he would always be is a horse. Right? When it comes to interacting with an animal like that, there are things you do and there are things that you don't do in wisdom. When we come to God, it is necessary that we remember our place. (laughs) Uh, Do you remember at the the beginning of of the sermon today, I mentioned our friend Thomas Watson from the 1600s? This book of his I've been reading, he defines for us what the fear of God is in a positive sense. This is from 1682. He said, the fear of God is, and that's, that's a picture of him there too. I like to put the picture up because I think his mustache has got a lot of riz. <laughs> it's quite the drip. He said, the fear of God is a divine fear, which is the reverencing and adoring of God's holiness and the setting of ourselves always under his sacred inspection that the infinite distance between God and us causes this fear. Isn't that so wonderfully balanced? That's the balance. The fear of God, that the positive fear of God which creates all of these virtues in our life, it's both the reverence, I am smaller, he is stronger, he is mighty, I am not, he is great, he is glorious. Reverence and adoration. I love him for this. It draws me near. Reverence and adoration for God and his holiness. The next bits. 
It is always setting ourselves under his sacred inspection. In other words, we live our whole lives before his sight. God knows everything about us. He sees all. So the fear of God will include an awareness that I do nothing in secret before this mighty God. And lastly, he points out the awareness that the infinite distance between God and us causes this fear. When he says that, he doesn't mean relational distance. He doesn't mean God is distant from us. Not in that way. He means the distance of being. We are not his equals. That's what he means. When you come to God, you aren't coming to someone like me. You are coming to the infinite, divine, transcendent, unique, all-powerful and holy creator. To draw near to God is to go to the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. The consuming fire. We walk with the one from whose presence the earth and sky will one day flee. We are loved by the one who made Leviathan and set the boundaries for the ocean. This far and no further. The one who commands the wind and the waves so that they obey him. We worship the one who names the stars and form them by his hand. The one of whom the seraphs live to praise. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We draw near to the one whose glory the heavens proclaim day and night without words. The Lion of Judah. You cannot manipulate or deceive that God. You can't lie to him. He knows it all. Before a word is on my lips, he knows it completely. Our whole existence, every thought and deed, is before his sacred inspection. And it is to him that we must all give an account. He is the one who decides who is his and who is not. Guilty or innocent, it is his decree. And that God demands your worship. His glory he will not share with another. This knowledge, it doesn't diminish grace. It shows grace to be as precious as it is. There but for the grace of God go I. The fear of God is not the fear that God is a liar. It is the fear that he is the truth. It is not the fear of his changing his mind. 
It is the fear of disappointing him and earning his disapproval. Nothing worse could happen. And when this kind of God says he feeds the sparrows, he can actually do it. And when this kind of God says that he knows your name and that you are of more worth than many sparrows to him, he actually means it. The fear of this God is the fear which drives out all competing fears and stands alone as the chief desire of our lives. I am worried what they will think of me. And I am worried what they will do to me. And I am worried that I will not get what I want. And I will miss out on opportunities and pleasures. But my greatest fear would be to miss out on his love and his approval. To displease him and to become his enemy. And in light of that fear, I am willing to disappoint everybody else. And so grace should lead me to walk in reverence and awe for this mighty God who loves me. Fear should lead me to take seriously the things of God. To not make excuses or take convenient shortcuts. To live as though every part of my life matters to him. And to live as though I have security in his promises. All of this is ours in Christ Jesus. Let's pray.